Good morning. Let me invite you to take a copy of God's Word and to turn or perhaps to scroll to Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. Acts 20, 17 through 38, as we continue our study of the book of Acts. And as you're turning there, I want to remind you one more time, uh, Scott mentioned this uh, right before we began singing, but uh, we've had a lot of visitors in recent weeks, and we're so excited about that. And if you're visiting with us, we want to invite you to our Lunch with the Staff, uh, which is going to be on February 18th. You can sign up for that outside at the Connection Center. Uh, but we would love to get to meet you and talk to you a little bit about what God is doing here at Taylor's First Baptist and to see uh, what that might mean for you. So we want to encourage you to check that out. If you've turned to Acts chapter 20, 17 through 38, let me invite you to read along quietly while I read out loud. Now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
And when Paul had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we're thankful for the opportunity that we've had to worship you so far this morning, Lord. We've worshiped you through singing. We've worshiped you through prayer. And now we pray, Lord, that your spirit would be with us as we worship you through hearing and responding to your word. And as the preacher this morning, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. He was, without a doubt, the most famous man on the continent. He could have been the king if he wanted to. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that most of his contemporaries really wanted him to be the king. He was that beloved by almost everybody. So imagine everyone's surprise when George Washington penned his farewell address on on, uh, September 19, 1796. As people read their newspapers and they saw that Washington was stepping down, he praised his fellow countrymen. He offered a handful of warnings that we still wrestle with today, the wisdom of those warnings. He announced his retirement from public life, and then that is exactly what he did. And with just a couple of brief exceptions, George Washington went back to the farm, and nobody heard anything else from him again. In many ways, that farewell address cemented his place as the greatest of America's founding fathers. If we go back, About 1,750 years before Washington's farewell address, we find another noteworthy farewell address by another significant leader on another continent. As Paul was making his way back to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, he stopped briefly in the port city of Miletus. While he was there, he invited the elders from the Ephesian church, which was about 30 miles away, to come there and meet with him so that he could offer some parting words. And in this address, what's interesting is Paul gave his only public address that is recorded for us in Scripture that was to fellow believers. Everything else was either uh, a speech or an address to unbelievers, or it was a public defense in some sort of legal proceeding. But here, he speaks to those believers And in his farewell address, Paul cast his vision for faithful pastoral ministry to those leaders. As we walk through Paul's parting words to the Ephesian elders this morning in Acts 20, 17 through 38, we're going to see three ministry priorities that ought to characterize faithful pastoral leaders. But first... Before we start doing that, I think it's helpful if we step back for just a minute 
And if I offer a couple of preliminary comments about some of the language that we're going to find over and over again in this passage, because I think it's going to help us understand uh, who Paul is speaking to and what it means for us today. Paul calls the leaders whom he's gathered together at Miletus both elders and overseers. Or maybe your Bible translation says elders and bishops. And in Acts chapter 20, these are two different titles for the same role in the Ephesian church. Paul also describes the work that these elders or overseers were doing with shepherding language. We get our English word pastor from the Greek word for shepherd. And this is when it's used most clearly in the New Testament to refer to that leadership role. Now later on, past the time of the New Testament and up to the present day, different Christian traditions would have different distinctions between these names, elders, overseers, or bishops, pastors, and their various roles and responsibilities. But it's important for us to understand that originally, in the New Testament, these were different titles for the same role. Elder, pastor, overseer. They were complementary ways to refer to the same position. Now, like most Baptist churches today, Taylor's prefers the title pastor. But whenever we use that word pastor, we mean the same leadership role that the New Testament also calls elder or overseer or bishop, depending upon which translation that you have. So pastor, elder, overseer, that's who Paul's writing to. But interestingly, throughout this passage, we also see that these different titles are referred to in the plural. In fact, throughout the New Testament, these titles are normally referred to in the plural. It seems that the earliest churches often at least had more than one pastor, elder, overseer as those churches were growing and as God was raising up and gifting men to serve in that leadership role. The New Testament gives us a vision for shared shepherding whenever it comes to pastoral leadership. Now today, some churches make distinctions between pastors and associate pastors or assistant pastors. And many churches, like Taylor's, give different titles to pastors like lead pastor, worship pastor, equip pastor, whatever the case might be. These sorts of decisions are fine, but we need to understand that they are contextual to each congregation and that they're based on a combination of congregational need. Every church is a little bit different with its size and its demographic and its resources. It's also based on organizational wisdom. What sort of pastoral structure makes sense for a particular church? But we need to remember that biblically speaking, there is only one pastoral role. That office of pastor, elder, overseer. And any man who is appointed to that role 
regardless of whatever variation it comes in, ought to meet the biblical qualifications that we see in passages just like this in Acts chapter 20. So with those preliminary thoughts in mind about who we're talking about, who Paul is speaking to, let's think together about these three ministry priorities that he gives to faithful pastors. And the first priority we see in this passage is this. Faithful pastors proclaim biblical truth to God's people. Faithful pastors proclaim biblical truth to God's people. In verses 17 through 27, Paul offers himself up as a role model to the Ephesian elders. He was a role model in his posture. He says in verses 18 and 19, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Paul says he served the church humbly. He invested his whole heart into that service. And he didn't allow his ministry to be derailed by the plots and the schemes of hostile, unbelieving Jews. We saw some of those schemes uh, back in Acts chapter 19 and other places. He also knew that future sufferings were just around the corner. He says in verses 23 and 24, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. He even says in verse 25 that he's not going to see these Ephesian elders again in person. Paul knew two things to be true. That the Holy Spirit was absolutely ordering his steps and that part of the Spirit's plan for his life was future opposition wherever he preached. In fact, we know from the rest of the New Testament that Paul spent most of the final years of his life in prison. And while in prison, he would write some of his best-known letters. Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesians. A letter written to this same church, led by these same men. As we've seen now for many months, a recurring theme in the book of Acts is that whenever the kingdom advances, there is always opposition. So Paul wasn't surprised, and we shouldn't be surprised when that opposition comes. But Paul wasn't only a role model in his posture, he was also a role model in his preaching. He says in verses 20 and 21, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verses 26 and 27, he says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul didn't shrink back. He boldly proclaimed the whole counsel of God. 
God's redemptive plan that we find across the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. He didn't have Revelation yet, but from Genesis to Second Chronicles for him, as well as all of this message of Jesus about the all-sufficient merit that they knew and they were passing down, that was his message. He says he taught from house to house and in public. He says he testified to both Jew and Greek. But he says whoever he was speaking to, his one message was always the gospel. Wherever he was across the whole counsel of God. All this is consistent with Paul's normal pattern of ministry that we've seen throughout Acts over the last 18 months. Paul was a one-message man. And he preached that one message to whomever would lend him an ear over and over and over again. He testifies that he's innocent of the blood of all. It's an unusual phrase, but he's actually citing the prophet Ezekiel whenever he says that. And that was a particular way in Jewish culture of saying he'd done what God had called him to do and he's not responsible for anything that goes wrong after this. He's been faithful. He's innocent of the blood of all. He's going to be judged by what he has done, not by anything that might come along later. Finally, we see that Paul wasn't only a role model in his posture or in his preaching, but he was also a role model in his philosophy. Let's look at verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Isn't that a great verse? Acts chapter 20, verse 24, is a favorite verse of many pastors that I know. In fact, Acts chapter 20, verse 24, is Josh Powell's favorite verse. It is so much his favorite verse, he has threatened me within an inch of my life to not botch it today <laughs> as we talk about it in these services. Acts 20, 24 reminds us that it's not about the pastor, but it's about the ministry that God has entrusted to the pastor. Pastors are to glorify God by staying the course, persisting in their preaching of the all-sufficient merit of Jesus Christ, the gospel, and then at the end of their race, finishing well. Church, you want pastors who imitate Paul's posture, his preaching, and his philosophy. So I'm begging you, hold us accountable to this sort of teaching ministry. Hold us accountable. I'm also urging you to submit to our teaching to the degree that you are confident we are one message men proclaiming the whole counsel of God. Because we are not the authority, but the word of God is the authority. 
What we say is not the authority. The one message we preach and teach a thousand different ways is the authority. And if you find yourself in a situation where you ever feel like the Lord is leading you to a different church, which will not happen unless you're moving somewhere else, (laughs) I want to encourage you to seek out a church whose pastors look like this. It's that important. Faithful pastors proclaim biblical truth to God's people. But there's a second ministry priority that we see in this passage, and it's this. Faithful pastors protect themselves and God's people from threats to truth. Faithful pastors protect themselves and God's people from threats to the faith. If verses 17 through 27 mostly speak to the positive ministry of proclaiming the truth, verses 28 through 31 focus upon the negative ministry, if you will, of encountering error, of encountering false doctrine. Verses 28 through 31 read, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears." These verses remind me of the words that Paul is later going to write in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Interestingly, to a young elder in this same church, Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Pastors guard themselves from bad doctrine in part so that they are able to guard the church from bad doctrine, to protect God's people from error. And this is important because verses 29 and 30 are a reminder to us, as they were a reminder to these Ephesian elders, that false teachers will always try to sneak into the church from the outside and sometimes, tragically, even arise from within the visible church. Remember, Paul is using a lot of shepherding language, a lot of pastoring language. So it's noteworthy, I think, that he calls false teachers wolves. We're used to thinking about wolves when we think about shepherds, aren't we? Shepherds don't let wolves teach them their wolvish ways. Shepherds don't offer wolves access to the sheep. Shepherds don't encourage the sheep to go hang out with the wolves. If a shepherd acted like that, we'd say he's a pretty crummy shepherd. Shepherds avoid wolves as much as possible, and they do their dead-level best to protect the sheep from the wolves Because wolves are dangerous carnivores. 
that would love to do nothing more than devour the sheep and even the shepherd if they have the chance to do so. So Paul urges these spiritual shepherds, these pastors, to remain on guard against false teachers. And to remember that he had been willing for three years to correct others when necessary. Even when there were tears involved, he was willing to admonish bad doctrine whenever he saw it. It's not enough for pastors to teach sound doctrine. Pastors must also lovingly but clearly correct dangerous doctrine. I teach leadership classes and occasionally consult with different groups on leadership. And one of the things we say in organizational leadership culture is that clarity is kindness. When it comes to the teaching ministry of a local church, protecting the flock from bad doctrine, clarity is kindness. The most loving thing we can do is offer correction. In our day, we are threatened with false teachers from outside and within, just like Paul was. The wider culture tells us there are many pathways to salvation. That we can chart our own course and are the captains of our own destiny. That we can have sex with whomever we want to as long as it's a consenting adult. That gender is fluid. That he who dies with the most toys wins. And the list could go on and on when it comes to that sort of thing. Even within the visible church there are threats. There are theological liberals who redefine the faith. There are prosperity gospel hucksters who make God into a divine vending machine who gives us whatever we want. There are partisan pastors who turn patriotism into an idol. There are progressive preachers who allow secular identity politics to drive their teaching ministry. And the list could go on and on. Pastors must confront bad doctrine head on when it infiltrates the church or arises from within the church because false doctrine is never a laughing matter. Indeed, if it's too serious, eternity itself might be hanging in the balance. Church, you want pastors who aren't afraid to speak out against the idols of our culture and the bad ideas that we sometimes find among believers. Pray that God would help us to have the discernment to determine the truth from error, the boldness to lovingly confront error whenever necessary, and the shepherd's heart to protect this flock from the wolves, wherever they may come from. Faithful pastors... Protect God's people from threats to the faith. There's a third truth that we see in this passage. Faithful pastors are motivated by love for God and God's people rather than material gain. Faithful pastors are motivated by love for God and God's people rather than material gain. 
Paul closes his farewell address by reminding the Ephesians about his real motivations. Let's read again verses 33 through 35. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. For Paul, pastoral ministry should never be about accumulating worldly riches. And that was an important point for him to make in his particular context. In the first century, there were traveling teachers and philosophers all over the Greco-Roman world who had a reputation for coming into communities, offering their services, but exploiting their customers. This remained a problem even into the second century in the church. A famous early Christian writing called The Teaching of the Twelve Apostles actually says not to listen to any traveling preacher who stays in your house for more than three days or charges money for his work. It was an issue. But Paul was different. Even though he wrote in 1 Timothy 5.18 that pastors are worthy of being paid, he did, you can look it up, 1 Timothy 5.18, he personally chose to earn his income most of the time from working hard at making tents so that his reputation would be above reproach with the people that he was ministering to. He also says his hard work was a reminder to everyone of Jesus' teaching that it's more blessed to give than receive. You know what's really cool about that? It's more blessed to give than receive? That's Jesus' teaching, but that's not anywhere else in the New Testament. It's not written anywhere else in the New Testament. This is where we find it. But Paul says it's Jesus' teaching that he was reminding him of, which means they had heard it as well. This is just a reminder to us that there were lots of people repeating the words of Jesus in the first century before the canon of Scripture was complete. And the Bible doesn't contain for us everything that Jesus ever said during his ministry. Here, Paul is sharing from their oral memory of Jesus' teaching. It's more blessed to give than receive. And we have it because Paul is sharing it rather than it being found in the Gospels themselves. Isn't that cool? I think that's cool. It's clear the elders believed that Paul was above board when it came to his motivations. Verses 36 and 38, we won't read them again, but they paint a beautiful picture of just how much these men loved Paul and how much he loved them. They weren't ready for him to go. They weren't thinking he'd overstayed his welcome. They weren't thinking there was something wrong with his ministry. They were sad he was leaving. Church, never trust a pastor or any other ministry leader who seems to be in it for financial gain. Don't trust them. I want you to listen closely. When pastors are chasing after money, they're not worth following. When pastors are chasing after money, they're not worth following. At the same time, remember that it is a good and godly thing 
to pay pastors a livable wage so that they can focus their attention on shepherding the flock. It's not a requirement. There are lots of churches that can't afford to do it, but many churches can, and this church certainly can. It's a good and godly thing to pay pastors a livable wage so that they can focus as much of their time as possible on shepherding their flock. No one has asked me to do this, but on behalf of our entire ministry team at Taylor's First Baptist, I want to publicly thank you for your generosity as a church. Your generosity frees up every other pastor and minister to focus full-time on the ministry of the gospel, and it enables me, the part-timer, to dedicate a portion of my time every week to shepherding the flock of God. Thank you for being such a generous, kingdom-minded congregation. Remember, faithful pastors are motivated by love for God and God's people rather than material gain. Brothers and sisters, Paul's vision for pastoral ministry should motivate every man whom God calls to the ministry of the gospel. In fact, a church like ours that is seeking to be intentional about raising up future pastors, we should hold this vision of gospel ministry before them. We have many young men in this church and a few not as young men in this church that right now are preparing for the ministry of the gospel. And as a church, not just as the pastors, but as a church, this is what we want to challenge them to. This is what we want to spur them on to. Whether they eventually bless this church in pastoral leadership, or whether we send them out to do kingdom work somewhere else, to pastor other churches, or maybe to plant churches, or maybe to proclaim the gospel in the hard-to-reach places where they've never even heard the name of Jesus. This is the vision that we want to put before those men. Paul's vision should also be the template that our church uses whenever we have an opening, if you will. Whenever we are seeking out a particular man to serve in a particular pastoral role, it doesn't matter what the title is, doesn't matter what name it's going to have on the website or the business card, doesn't matter if it's full-time or if it's part-time, if what we're seeking is a pastor, this is what we're looking for. If what we're seeking is someone who's part of the ministry team, this is really what we're looking for. This is Paul's vision for faithful ministry. So brothers and sisters, pray that our pastors would remain faithful. For our good, for your growth, and for God's glory. I think the best way I can close this particular sermon is by reading one more time from verse 32, which is almost like a benediction. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your kind providence, you gift the body of Christ with faithful pastor, elder, overseers. And Lord, we pray that you would help 
our pastors, that you would help me, that you would help our pastors and our ministry team to be faithful to this vision. Lord, we pray that you would give this church wisdom and unity in the one message that we all affirm to hold us accountable. And over time, as folks retire or move on, to replace us with godly men who share this vision. And Lord, we pray that you would be glorified, that we would be sanctified, and that our community would be transformed in part through the faithful teaching of faithful men among faithful people who take that faithful message wherever we may. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.